Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Backstage With, conversations with your favourite theatre actors and creatives. I'm Mikey Worrell. Today's guest describes her job as looking after souls. She's an actress who's helped develop some of the biggest West End productions of the last 20 years, including Mary Poppins, Matilda, and most recently, And Juliet, in which she was playing the nurse up until lockdown. But she is planning to go back when the show reopens, which will probably be in the spring. Here's my conversation with Melanie LeBarry. Oh, that's a lovely cello in the background there. Oh, thank you. I wish I'd, I'd played well enough to <laughs> to warrant how great that looks there. It's mostly just me doing something for fun. Sure, sure. It's a lovely Zoom background anyway. I, I want to start by talking about the day the West End shut down. And I've talked to various people across the industry about this. And it's really struck me how unique everybody's stories are from when they were told the news that they weren't going on that night or that their show was cancelled on Monday the 16th of March. How do you remember it? Well, I mean, I am the West End depth for Anne Juliet, one of the West End depths, uh, along with Chris Parkinson. And we were, because of the very unique situation and um, just how impactful it was, all of the West End depths formed a WhatsApp group it was organized by Paul Fleming and, and we all formed a WhatsApp group, which was the very first time that we'd had that kind of network, you know, this kind of interconnected network. So we were in the know very early on. We couldn't say very much, but we were on that day just getting ping after ping with news from other productions that were closing. And we did not really know what it meant because around that time too, uh, we uh, were trying to get information on on what it meant, you know, force majeure, what that meant, you know, just to have answers because the members of equity were asking questions about what it meant if we did close and, you know, would we have jobs and, you know. So uh, suddenly us as West End Depth, our brains were were more occupied with that, with those sorts of questions rather than really thinking about ourselves as artists. So I, we were, I had my phone with me at warm-up. We were at warm-up. We'd done the physical warm-up. And I remember what, actually before that, I remember walking in because I come into Charing Cross and then walk all the way up through town to go to the Shelfsbury Theatre. And... Um, remember taking pictures of every street and sending it to my partner and saying, where is everyone? It was such a strange thing. And before I left, he called it. He said, there's not going to be a show tonight. There's not going to be shows. They're all going to close. It was a real ghost town. Normally I'm like fighting my way through the West End to get up to the Shoutsbury Theatre and really grumpy about having to walk through people. and everybody being so on the on the pavements but um i was i was so stunned by how quiet it was and there was a real unsettled air in the west end on that day everything was just kind it was as if we were all suspended in time 
And everything was kind of just moving, you know, in a slow motion-y kind of way. And it was as if all the dominoes that made up the West End were all toppling, but very, very slowly. And with each one that really slowly came down, it, you know, the other one was affected and that came down. And so I had my phone on me. I never take my phone anywhere near to the stage. I never take my phone down to warm up or because the stage is a very sacred space to me and I don't want to have anything. But that day I had my phone with me because there was so much news coming in. I think we started the vocal warm up and then everybody was called to the stage and, and I knew because, I, because it, everybody else was closing and I knew that that's what our news was going to be. And it was, I suppose, because I expected it, I, I want to say was prepared just for that day. I wasn't really prepared for what came next, but I was prepared for that day. And uh, immediately I took a picture of the empty auditorium because uh, it was significant. I didn't know why it was significant, but it was significant. Then I took a picture of Miriam on our bed, on the bed that we have in <laughs> um, Domino in her bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> With her just cuddling the things. And then we all kind of went up to, I think it was Ollie Thompson's room. Uh, there were about a few of us, because a, a lot of people just kind of went, right, pick my bag up and, and go. But we, about five of us, uh, Ollie Thompson, Miriam Tickley, uh, Tim Mahendra, and Aaron Blemanget, and myself, we just refused to go. <laughs> we just stayed there for ages, just in, the, in Ollie's room. You know, we all packed up into the room and started really talking about what it meant and what may happen next. And also m making jokes because that's what people do, you know, that dark humor. And uh, I suppose terrified in a way about what was going to happen. You know, people have families and, and bills and, and, you know, so, so there was a practical consideration of, about working in Western and how that makes things better for you as a person. But then there is the artistic consideration about when do we get to do what we love again? So all of that happened on that day. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. It's like, <laughs> you know, it was just like from that, mo you know, it seemed as if it was happening from the Friday before. Because also, we had so many people down with illness in Juliet that that weekend before the Monday, the Friday, and I think it was the Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, we weren't able to put on our full show. We had to do concert versions. And I think almost every show was a different version of a concert version because we'd had so much illness. I, I can't say for certain that the illness was COVID related. I think it was just a, it was one of those things where people were on their regular holidays and, you know, other people got ill, you know, it, so also is March. So, you know, it's like the end of flu season, right? So, yeah. so I couldn't say for certain that it, what was happening to us was COVID related. But um, so we'd had already, a, we'd had to cancel a show as well the week before because I had a friend come to see it and we ended up going for a drink. So it's like there were a series of things that was just happening again. You know, it's like I remember that, moment, that period in time in slow motion 
you know, there was a cancellation and then there was a concert version that was just the songs. And then there was another concert version that was just, um, was the show, but we, we didn't do any choreography and we had handheld mics and we did all the lines. And it was, it was a quite extraordinary time, certainly in Anne Juliet, but in the West End in general. And then we went on the Monday after, Afterwards, I'm so ashamed to say it, but Tim Mahendra and Ollie Thompson and I went to the pub on the way to the station. Because <laughs> we were like, oh, we've been closed down for a pandemic, so what do we do? Let's go to the It's so bad. It was such a, a terrible choice, but it's what I did, so I'm, I'm going to be honest about it and hold my hand up. <laughs> I was I was going to ask if you remembered what you did when you left the theatre because you yeah. described the journey in so vividly. But there we go. You went to the pub. I went to the pub. We didn't stay long because because it was all so weird. And and then I think we had one drink. We stood outside the pub because because we realised it was weird. And we stood outside the pub, and so we were all kind of like on in the street because there were no cars anyway. So we just stood in the street, and then we all just said goodbye and and went home. And it was like immediately, me as an equity debt, that was the role that took prominence because then the work seriously began. And that's what I've been doing since. <laughs> Do you remember the, the train journey home? Was it that equity debt mindset that you had the whole way home or, or were you still trying to process the enormity of, of what was going on? I, d- I don't think, no, I didn't go straight there. I, I you know... I think there is a thing that happens in my brain where it, you know, everything becomes very, very still. When, when it all becomes crazy outside, it, it becomes inside my brain, things get very still and very small and, uh, and very focused in a very emotionless way. So I become very practical. What happens next? What do I do? You know, and I don't, so I don't think I panicked in any way. I think I just, yeah, just got very kind of like, okay, this is what happened. I was very present with all of it. Very present with, with just the enormity of, of going home on a Monday night when I should have been performing. And just kind of like, just, uh, experiencing it, but but in a very emotionless way. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it do- it does definitely. Um, does that speak to how you deal with with crises in a normal scenario pre COVID? Do you, are you quite a pragmatic thinking person rather than the emotional, you know, someone who who struggles with big picture? Yeah, I I would think so. Um, I have this thing that, that even if, like, if I injure myself, if I have a big injury, like if I cut myself deeply, I never shriek out. See, me in normal, like, I'm really noisy normally, you know, so everything's loud, the laughter is loud, the cussing is loud, you know, and that's, that's just me on a regular day. So when it comes to crises, I, I really get very quiet. You always know when I'm really mad about something because I get really quiet. If if I'm like you know being really passionate about something is because I you know I'm I'm still okay about it. I like to get passionate about things just on a regular. 
<laughs> for no for no good reason. Sure. Um, so that's just me just being normal. But when it when it becomes very important, I I can get very still. Um, and and it was necessary. Yeah, and that's I think is how I deal with things. I I think almost every major distressing thing in my life, I dealt with in a very very still quiet way. I just want to read you something which is going to sound familiar, and this came at a time when lockdown restrictions were being eased, and it's sports being played, pubs opening, the nation needs a haircut, I could have done anything, sometimes I wonder why I chose to look after souls. And that was something you posted on Twitter in the summer, and I I remember favourite, I screenshotted it. That really sums up for me why I go to the theatre as a punter, it's to feel something we've all been denied for more than six months now so looking back at that time lockdown for me feels like a weird thing to look back on already how do you feel so there are a couple of things uh, that kind of happen one my life didn't change very much because I'm I, I actually really like being at home <laughs> um and so so there are there are things that I do during the day uh I and, and this is like like clockwork. This is how I operate. I wake up, I have coffee, I get ready. I come into my office. So you, you're looking into my office now, which is outside of my house. And I do things. So I mess around on cello and I do French class, you know, courses or I do Spanish courses and I do, uh, I teach myself how to code. I've been doing this for years as well. Yeah, you know, it's just like, it's just because I like to learn, right? And so so I always come and I find a course online and this is just how I operate. I mean, I've been teaching myself Spanish for like 20 years now. I still can't say a word. But when I go to Spain, I can understand almost all of it. So it's something's going in, but I can't make sentences. But but I like to te- I like to learn things. And when the, the Open University was really affordable, I used to just do course upon course. I would do, I would do physics. I did an ancient Greek course. I did a, a math course. And I just liked it. And it doesn't matter if I do well in it or not. And, you know, when I was in Matilda, I did my psychology degree because I, I, I was like, well, I might as well. I like learning, so I might as well do all of that. <laughs> you know, just do some, have something to show for it at the end. And um, so that's what I do. And then at around four o'clock, I go and I get ready and I go into the theater. 12 o'clock if it's a matinee day. And so the only thing that was different was that I wasn't going to the theater. So in terms of the most part of lockdown, it was the same. What then happened was the impact of not going to the theater. Because this is what I've done all my life, being on stage as well. I've been on stage since I was eight years old. So it's, it's just what I do. And so therefore, it's a very large part of me. And not being able to do that properly, not being able, as I said, you know, I said earlier that I, I don't take phones to the stage because it's such a sacred space to me. It's like the safest place that I that exists for me in the world. And I love being there. And I love sharing that space with people who love it as much as I do. So not being able to go and do that, 
Uh, and, you know, we did lots of creating, you know, we did lots of videos at home and singing and things and the concerts and all of that. But, um, yeah, no, just not being able to do that really took its toll on me. And so I would have, for the most part, a very regular, normal heartbeat. And then another heartbeat, an emotional soul heartbeat that went up and down and up and down. And being part of the West End Depths group and then subsequently being um, voted into council for equity, it meant that when we were part of the West End Depths group, it meant that we got all the bad news from the West End first. And then I became part of council and it now, it now means that I get all the bad news from up and down the UK first. Oh, goodness. So, and you have to have, so, you know, like a real, uh, I'm on council with some extraordinary people who have a lot more knowledge than I can even hope to have. And so that's kind of great. And I don't know how they do it. I don't know emotionally how they deal with it all. Because sometimes I have to just close my phone and go sit outside with the neighbor's cat. Because my cat hates me, so neighbor's cat loves me more. So she comes over. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, sorry, I, I've kind of like gone off on the thing. So, but it means that I then have to process not just my own feelings uh, about my own career, but I now process as well uh, how I feel about watching other people's careers get decimated. And it takes its toll. You know, as I say, I, you know, for, for anger, I get really still. And for, for, you know, things where I need to fight, I get really still. But I do allow myself and I feel no shame in being sad about things. And I get sad about it. I do get sad. And when I get sad, I go tweet. <laughs> Not always. Because I like my Twitter to be a really positive space. But every once in a while, I was like, oh. But Yeah. I chose to look after souls. And it's so funny. I've just um, applied for and been accepted to do my master's. Oh, wow. What in? Occupational or organizational psychology. Oh, fab. Um, because I still want to look after souls, but I want to look after souls um, as they work together. Yeah. You know, because I think that it's problematic. You know, the, how people work, especially now, in COVID, how people work and how they feel about working, it's it's exceedingly distressing, mm. especially with the change in rules all the time. We've only just, yesterday, people were just emerging back into their workplaces and finding that sense of self again, and now they've been told, no, back home for you. It's nuts, right? So I thought, why not go learn a little bit about that? Mm. <laughs> well, it sounds like you've, been able to find a remarkable number of positives in in this time that we've all had. It's interesting that you mentioned your social media there about how you try to keep it a positive place. And actually, I've made a note here to to ask you about that because I often see your tweets and and sometimes when I'm having a really bad day, I just see a tweet from you and and just at the right moment and it kind of make me feel better because you you seem to use it as a tool for compassion and and support for other people. Do you find it difficult to bring light to somewhere that is so dark like Twitter? No, because my Twitter is not dark. Because, you know, this is the thing that I try to um, try to teach people. There are a couple of things I try to teach people. One is how to take a, a compliment properly. 
But people don't know how to take, they don't know how to receive goodness. That's true. <laughs> so I have always tried to teach people how to receive a compliment because somebody is blessing you. So, you know, receive your blessing. Two, there are, I'm always trying to teach people that you can choose your environment. Yes, Twitter on the whole can be an exceedingly negative place. I've been on Twitter for oh God, probably a decade now or however long. I have not had that experience because as soon as somebody comes to me, I am blocking. <laughs> and I say it all the time. I said, look, if you're going to come with your foolishness about Nicola Adams on Strictly, I love the Strictly. If you're going to come with the foolishness, I'm going to block you because I don't want to see it. No, it doesn't mean that I am not open for a, a constructive debate on several things, but there are certain things that I will not debate. I will not debate somebody's right to identify in their own way. I am not debating race because I am not debating my rights to exist. You know, I'm not doing it. It's just like, you know, where if people want to come and, and talk to me about, you know, what matters and who should matter, I don't, I am not getting involved in that. I am not asking anybody else to validate me. I have been on this earth now 46 years and I reserve my right and, and absolutely demand it to exist as the fullest human being that I can. So there are things that I will not debate. I'm not debating identity, gender identity, uh, because, because I believe in the right of choice. So I choose not to make my social media an echo chamber. I don't do that. But I choose to make it a very positive space. I choose to make it a very open space. And so what if it's an echo chamber? It's social media. <laughs> you know, what do you know? So what? I, if I choose to have this, I am having a nice time. If I'm going to open my phone, you know, these phones or whatever, there's such a, a window into the whole wide world and all that exists in it. And so I choose my window to open out onto green vegetation and beautiful gardens rather than cesspools. I'm not having it. And so, yeah, I, I just think that we can do that. I think that we can choose that. And I don't find it difficult. And I don't find it difficult to contribute positively to other people. It's so easy. It's how much? 200 and something characters. What's that about? 100 words? It is so easy. It is easy to put 100 words, 100 good words into somebody's day. I am not psychic. I am not a, you know, I am, I'm not a positive psychology coach. I am not, a, you know, a counselor. I mean, I have counseling training. Uh, I haven't finished it, but um, I'd love to. But I am, I, I feel that it is important to, uh, to treat with this world in not a Pollyanna type of way. Because a lot of the times I go on and I deal with distress as well. I deal with anxiety and I deal with depression. And I, I, but I feel that because the conversation is more public, 
we have forgotten or, or we have perhaps lost the skill to deal with everyday anxiety and sadness. To deal with everyday fear and sadness. We've lost that skill because we feel that we must be positive all the time, which is not true. <laughs> and so perhaps I positively engage with the fact that we can be sad or that we can have fear about ourselves, our actions, or, or, you know, our future, that we can feel shame about what we've done or what we think or how we exist with others in this world. Those are normal. Because I think we've medicalized and pathologized fear and sadness and shame so much that we've forgotten that they are just regular parts of existing in this world. And so I suppose I do engage positively on Twitter, but it's mostly to say, I hear that you're feeling this way and I want to say to you, it's okay. I want to say to you that, you know, you, it's, it doesn't devalue you as a person if you're sad today. That your space on this earth still is yours and, and is still owned by you and is still you have a right to it, even if you are panicking about whether you should exist or not. I hope that people choose to keep existing, but I respect their rights to be in this world in whatever way that they choose. And so I think rather than saying that I have a positive social media, what I would say is that I have social media that makes space for others to kind of come in and just be as they are. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to tell you, actually, you, you've come up in conversation a number of times on this podcast before when I've spoken to people who you've been working with at that time. So Alice Fern in When You Were in Wicked and Miriam Teat Lee in And Juliet. And they have both mentioned, unprompted, by the way, how much light and love you bring to a company. And I can totally see that just from spending half an hour on a Zoom call with you. I wanted to ask, do you go in with this concerted effort to make space for people? Or is it something that just happens without even thinking about it? I feel like it does a bit of false advertising because I can be as grumpy as they come <laughs> on a day on the day today look i mean if you speak to some departments of some of these shows you know because i'm also very exacting uh, about things you know I'm, i can be very exacting about my wig i can be very exacting about timekeeping um and if you speak to certain people you maybe not speaking to those people but if you speak to certain people they would say she is a bitch <laughs> oh no no they wouldn't <laughs> No, but you know what I mean? Is that because because I I can and when I work, I can demand so much of other people. And I, I am I, I can be so I suppose exacting is exactly the right word. Uh, I, I like things to be a certain way. But it like every dresser that I have ever worked with knows don't bother me before the five 
or in some cases, beginners, which is a real stress for them because sometimes they have other people to do. But I'm like, I'm not getting into these clothes until the very last minute. I have always had the very best dresses and they do everything in their power to accommodate me. Um, and so I appreciate every single one of them. But I'm like that. However, saying that, and I love my children with my whole heart. It's not an effort. It's so easy to be nice, I think. I think it's so much easier to be nice than to be not nice. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and I don't feel like if I have to try. Also, I really love other people. I'm so like in awe and in armored with other people and what they can do and who they are. You know, you talk about these two young women who I love with every fiber of my being. <laughs> and I, you know, will do anything. They ask me to do anything. I will do anything for them. They also both have extraordinary jobs to do. Um, and in the context of those shows, had extraordinary jobs to do. And I feel like if it's my duty as an older member of the class to look after them because they needed their, their space to be as easy as possible. They needed their surroundings, their environment to be as easy as possible. They needed to be looked after and cared for, not just by uh, their, their, you know, the working departments, but also the people around them because they had a lot on their shoulders. And I feel that way about all my kids. I feel that way about all the kids in the ensemble, all the kids up and down, you know, other people that I'm working with, they have a lot to do, really a lot to do, to come in and make theater, every department. They have a lot to do. And so my job when I go to work is to make their lives as easy as possible except those people whose lives I make harder. <laughs> oh, you see, but I don't want people to think that, you know, there I am going around being just like this angel. Because sometimes I'm not. If things are going my way, then yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Aside from the pandemic, much of the, the national discourse, if you like, lately has been about race. I was wondering if you would be willing to share any of your experiences of being a black woman in the theatre industry. It's really extraordinary. And, and I've had a lot of time to think about this. You see, I come from Trinidad. And so when I came to this country, I was an adult. I was about 20 years ago, so I was 26. So it meant that I had a lot of time into my adulthood living in a country where most everybody looks like me. And if they don't look like me, they sound like me. It's not a homogenous society in any way, but it's everybody identifies very strongly as being Trinidadian. We share, even if we have different aspects of our culture, we share it so widely. And, you know, that you you just assimilate all of those parts into you. And even in terms of my heritage, 
I have East Indian heritage, I have French heritage, I have Chinese heritage, uh, you know, and, and African heritage. So there are a lot of parts that go into making me up. And I say all of that, not just to waffle, but it matters because it means that I came to this country knowing only how to be part of a majority culture. And I had to learn what it meant to be a minority. But because that was a learned experience rather than a lived experience, my lived experience has always been somebody who comes from a majority culture. So it means very early on, if I was ever in a situation where it didn't feel right or I felt as if I was being discriminated against in work, I removed myself from that situation. I always felt that, I, I mean, I am not a star in, in theater. I'm not, I'm not a, you know, there are superstars, you know, in, in our theater, but I, I'm, just, I'm just like a regular jobbing actress in, with some regard, I have like the regard of my peers, but you know, I don't, people are not like thinking about me first to put me in stuff. But I, I have a good career, I'm, you know, love my career. But I always feel as if I'm very, very special. I know that there is only one of me. And that's another thing that I'm always trying to teach people because they devalue themselves because they think that there are so many of them. I'll come back to that. So it means that I always behave as if that's the last time I'm going to work for that producer or if that's the last time I'm going to work for that director. So I tell them what I think. It therefore means that I do not allow certain situations into my life. If there is even, if we are creating or we are at the beginning of a process and there is even a whiff of racism, I'm out of there. I don't, I'm not staying. I'm not doing it. I'm just not inviting it into my life. It's like my social media. I choose what I live with. Because of that, people generally treat me well. I cannot tell you, you know, in, in large commercial productions or, you know, or other things, I can't really think of, of times that I've been discriminated against. I must have been because it exists. I may have, you know, there might have been ways in which it has worked, you know, colorism has worked in my favor. So I may have benefited from discrimination. That exists too. But in terms of being specifically targeted in the industry, I can't say that that has happened to me because I shut it down immediately. People have, you know, said certain things. I remember, I'm not going to say what the job was, but I remember leaving a job and they were having some trouble recasting me and the associate director, I was having my hair done and they came into the wig room and they were like, oh God, I just need somebody fat and black who can sing. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, all right. I mean, I'd already had, you know, however long in that contract having a lovely time. So that came at the end. And I, I had to, you know, put that person, sit down and have a chat yeah. about one, how they valued my contribution to the show, which was a very large West End show. And two, why they felt it was okay to come and say that in my presence. They felt that they were being flip. 
And they will, they will, you know, he didn't mean anything by it. But it was, you know, he didn't recognize the importance of that language in trying to devalue not just me, but people like me in this industry and what we contribute to theater. So that sort of thing, there might be the individual, but also never a person in power or never a person that could do anything to me. But in terms of like, have I had racist things happen to me in my life, having lived here? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, and my very first tour, so that was back in 2001, and it was the winter, and I was in the north. I was just about to say name and place, but I thought maybe let's not do that. I... I booked my dates and I booked my dates on my phone and my accent was a lot thicker than it, than it is now. And I got there and the lady refused to let me in because she didn't, she said I didn't tell her that I was black. And so I spent my very first night on tour in this country in the winter in a park. <laughs> well, not a park. It was like a public square. Because I didn't me. really couldn't figure out how to, you know, grand or hotel. I like you, you slept outside. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't sleep. I just kind of like sat up, just kind of like mostly like disbelieving, not even angry, just disbelieving of the whole thing. I just found it like, what? <laughs> this is so weird. It's like, do people do this? This is like the weirdest thing. I can't. I can't believe that happened. I can't, I'm sorry that happened to you. I can't. I can't believe that. <laughs> well, I mean, even like, like thinking about it, I just or remembering it, I I can't say that I have any real feelings about it. I still, I think the, the overwhelming feeling that I have is still disbelief. Is that feeling of like, wow, this person did that. <laughs> I can't believe they did that. But I couldn't, I couldn't say that I, you know, feel angry towards that person because it's their loss, really. Because <laughs> I'm pretty great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but also, you know, you kind of think when people have those kinds of uh, attitudes, I always feel as if there is so much that they're missing out on in this world and in this life. And, and that their lives must be poorer for holding on to that amount of hate and, you know. <sighs> yeah, it, it just, I didn't, you know, I survived it. 20 years later, I'm still here. and still carrying on and, you know, having a great time in my life. And I don't know how, how that person is. I hope they're having a great time too. But just with a more narrow experience of the world. But, you know. I've never seen them again, so I really haven't thought about them until just <laughs> Poor thing, little lady. I just can't believe that that happened. That's <laughs> astonishing. Let's let's talk about happy things. Yes. Um, the we we talked briefly about the theatre earlier, but the Shaftesbury Theatre. I actually was lucky enough to have a walk around there on Saturday when they did the open house thing, oh. um, and see all the building work. Have you been back since since you left? I haven't been back. No. I should go, there's a onesie there that I need for the winter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Um, and like everything is there. There's also a bottle of whiskey that was given to me by a lovely, lovely. Um, I suppose she, you know, she's part of my little theatre family. Who I met her when I was on Wicked, and she used to come see Wicked all the time. Now she comes and uh, visits us at, at Aunt Juliet, and she gave me a lovely bottle of whiskey, which I left at the theatre. I'm so sad about it. So maybe we need to go and get whiskey. Yeah, I think How so. How was it? The, the front of house areas where they're doing all the work, they're doing so much and it's going to look beautiful. And they're doing really important work. They're putting a lift in for the stalls for wheelchair users, which will mean that people who are in wheelchairs will be able to sit next to the people they come to the theatre with rather than on their own in a separate space, which is so important. And they're putting a separate corridor at the back of the stalls to stop the light bleeding in from the loos and the sound from the hand dryers, which is brilliant. Um, but the thing that was quite eerie was when we, we were on the stage and we were taken into the wings and then substage down that little staircase and there were just loads of half full bottles of water just abandoned and pieces of paper stuck in the wings of the cuts for, for the last time the show was performed, of which there were many, which is explained by the fact that there were so many people off that last week. And an open packet of cigarettes on the, on one of the chairs in the band area. It was it was eerie. It was really eerie. Yeah. It's just, as I said, that that's what it felt like. It felt like if we were just suspended. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, like something was falling from a table and it just stopped midair. And that's what it's like, I guess. Yeah. Um, I know some people have been back, but I haven't. Also, I'm asthmatic, so I like I don't go out unless I absolutely have to. Because you know, people, you know, there are people out there who have different views about masks. I, <laughs> I'm like, I have, a, I do not want to have to deal with you. So. <laughs> Oh, stay in my house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for downloading this episode of the Backstage With podcast. If you're enjoying it, then please subscribe and leave us a rating and a review on our Apple Podcasts page. Now back to Mel. The Shaftesbury in particular is somewhere that you've been twice now, 2006 and then most recently with Anne Julia. Is that a particularly special theatre to you? I love the Shaftesbury. It's so great. It's so special because Harry's there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Harry just makes life better. The fact that Harry exists is just the thing that, you know, makes being in theatre worthwhile. (laughs) Um, For for people who are listening to this who maybe don't know who Harry is, just just explain. So Harry is a stage door keep at at the Shaftesbury Theatre and has been there for 40 years. And we recently celebrated his 40-year anniversary of his involvement at the Shaftesbury. And Harry is... He is a stalwart of theatre. He was given an honorary uh, Olivier uh, for his services, his contribution to the arts. And he really has. And he looks after so many people. I mean, Harry remembered me. I think it was about 10 or 12 years since I'd been at the Shaftesbury. And Harry remembered who I was. And, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people go through, thousands maybe, go through the doors of the Shaftesbury Theatre. And he has an extraordinary memory for each person and, and their experience. And he has so much love. You see, that's the thing. 
is when I encounter people like that, it shows me the kind of person I want to be. And I remember making a decision very early on that I wanted to be the type of person where somebody left me feeling better than when they arrived. And Harry is that kind of person. You always feel a whole lot better. You always learn a whole lot more. Because he could talk about anything, the history of theatre, he's got extraordinary political and social mind. And uh, he just knows so much. And, you know, he will take the time to talk to you about it. I'm always kind of like hustling in and out of theatre, you know, I'm always hustling everywhere. And he is, you know, I will stop for Harry. I will stop for Harry. Maybe we late for warmer, but I will stop for Harry. <laughs> <laughs> there's always, there's always company coming up the stairs, kind of going, are you going to come up this? Like, yes. <laughs> you see, don't always do the right thing. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I was at the Shaw Street Theatre all those years ago with a show that really wasn't very successful and um, by and large not very good. <laughs> it was Daddy Cool the Musical. Um, but I had some, I, I worked with some really fun people and I had a really great song to sing. I, I had to sing I Can't Tell the Rain, uh-huh. um, which is a fantastic song. And... I had a really nice time, and some of my dearest, dearest friends come from that show. Uh, so, wh whatever, sometimes, you know, whatever it is you're doing, it, it mightn't work in terms of the work itself. The content mightn't work, but there's so much around making, so many aspects around making theatre. And so, yeah, I suppose the Shell Street Theatre is very, very special to me in terms of what it's given me regarding my. French, my dear, dear friendships and, uh, and the memories and Harry. <laughs> it's so interesting you talk about the show that you did 14 years ago being by and large not very good. I just want to pick that apart a little bit. Is that something that you know when you are in a show, if it's good or bad, or is it something that you learn in reflection afterwards when you go, yeah, that wasn't great, was it? I think sometimes uh, it, it can happen at different points. It can happen, you know, at I've, I've taken some jobs and I've done them because I've really loved the director, even though I know that that job wasn't going to be great. And it proved me right. I thought Daddy Cool was going to be a really fun thing. And people loved it. You know, people can see it. They loved it. Uh, I think, you know, we probably just got it wrong in, in certain parts as we were making it. It was rife with a lot of troubles as well you know we lost our scriptwriter. it had to be delayed when we finally started i had to go tell them that my contract was up the following week or something because you know they just kind of like kept, kept us on contract because they didn't want to lose the company so it was it was like a series of bad luck events that culminated in something that was fun there were great things about it as well. You know, I don't want to just disparage the show. We had great performances in it. It was great music. You know, and the music of Frank Farron is, is fantastic. People, you know, it, it's that kind of like cheesy, guilty pleasures kind of thing. Um, mm. So you've got to love that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, and sometimes, sometimes you just don't know. Or sometimes you make something that you think is great and it just doesn't... Um, doesn't pan out. I remember doing, uh, I'm just going to talk about like every turkey I've ever done in my life. <laughs> oh, that's I fine. Remember... Do it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, and it's so, 
I mean, I apologize because so much work has gone into these projects, and so therefore calling them a Turkey, calling them Turkey so, uh, is very um, insulting, and I don't mean it to reflect on the work that was put into the making of the productions or the people that were involved in it. But I remember doing a musical at the King's Head Theatre, and I did it because at that point, there were so many reasons, right? And it's great. At that point, I'd only played uh, really fat comedy characters, you know, with, um, you know, uh, character roles, right? Yeah. I always, you know, always a bridesmaid, never the bride. And this show was given to me, and it was like my first, like, major league. It was at the King's Head Theatre, so small show. And the songs were incredible, really, really incredible songs. But it was about it was about child prostitution, so maybe not the best uh, topic to make a musical about. Yeah. But we thought that we were doing at the time. We thought we were doing really important work, highlighting because uh, it was based around the story of two young women uh, who were involved in the kids' company at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was run by Camilla batman and and a very very harrowing very sad story so that's not to say the musicals cannot deal with important issues so we thought by highlighting these issues that you know maybe we would we would be doing something good I think we just didn't get it right we all of us just didn't get it right there were too many aspects of comedy in it uh, maybe trying to do something so hard-hitting in such a small space, which a great theatre. I love the King's End Theatre. Loved working there. There's nowhere to get dressed. You know, everybody's just <laughs> changing in the corridor behind the little stage. And it was so many of us. Um, <laughs> and it was so hard-hitting because I had to have, kind of like have this um, nervous breakdown like every night and at one point I just started drinking whiskey before the show because I was just like this is too hard this is too much emotional emotional uh, stress and work to do every night so there were things that were great about it it was voted in the stage the worst musical ever to come out of that year wow that's a, that's quite an accolade <laughs> and we were like yeah I think we we didn't get it right. <laughs> and we just kind of like, but we still have to do it. You know, because we, we figured out really early on when all the reviews came out, we had so many one-star reviews. I think we got like a zero-star review. Um, <laughs> from, I think it was from stage, I think. Oh, God. They loved the performances. They were so, like, nice. Every Every newspaper, you know, Oh, was so nice about the performances, but they were like, this is bad, this is bad material. So we, I have to laugh about it, you know, it's like, I've, I've also been in Mary Poppins and Matilda, and you know, I've also made five star shows. <laughs> well, let's talk, let's talk about those, because you, you know, you said you, you've been here 20 years, but you've developed quite a number of shows, Mary Poppins, Matilda, uh, and Juliet. But something that I didn't know about until this morning was that you were involved in the workshop for The Little Mermaid. You played Ursula. I was! I that had was no idea. Great. So was that over here before it went to Broadway? It was here. So uh, the director, 
fantastic director came over, Stephen Mayer, who was a choreographer and who went to Broadway to do his work. Uh, we'd done Mary Poppins together. And so I suppose that was where my involvement came from. Uh, mm -hmm. He'd asked me to come and do this move. And it was a move. Now, I am not a dancer. I have danced in so many musicals now. And I don't know how I could get away with this, but I am not a dancer. But Stephen invited me to do this movement workshop. So it was basically a lot of the time about, <laughs> I just remembered it, about how these costumes would work. And it was about, um, uh, for the, the real dancers, uh, they had these heelys, you know, so they did the kind of the gliding thing. Mm, like roller skates. Yeah, so you, you know there was this shoe that you could, it was like a regular shoe, but then it had like a wheel in, oh, the, yeah. in the heel, remember those? Yeah. It wasn't like roller skates, so, so you could walk about normally, and then you could get on your heels and glide about so, so everybody could pretend to be under the seat. So it was about that, but and we had to do the music as well, and so I sang... I think it was a song that did not make it into the musical, so I was like the only person to perform that song and it was fantastic a great time i had a great time working with that director as well who i've never gotten to work with since but i've got i just remember there were a couple of things first of all dealing with these heelys because they were brand new i mean i would say like kids up and down the you know west end with them but these dancers would just they would be perfectly fine and then bam they'd be on their backs <laughs> it was just not like these were dangerous shoes and also there was me like stuffed you know like a, this, i am a chubby woman and here i was stuffed into purple lycra with eight <laughs> tentacles coming out of my hip and it's like this is not a good look <laughs> but it was great it's an iconic look Listen, they're, they're past about 100, weighing 100 pounds. Past that, nobody should be in purple like her. <laughs> but it was fantastic. I had the best time. I am always doing a workshop. I love a workshop. A lot of the times the shows that I end up doing have come from doing workshops. Matilda. I did mm -hmm. the last workshop of Matilda. And, you know, and then asked to come in to do uh, to do a dance call with um with Peter Darling so, so we did the workshop and I auditioned to do the workshop and I did my singing audition with Chris Nightingale which was lovely uh, it was one of the nicest auditions I love auditioning I know this is like actors never say this but I really love auditioning um but yeah uh, then afterwards, they were like, well, doing this workshop is not, in, you know, it's not an offer to do the show. That's it. You just audition it for the workshop. And then afterwards, they asked me to audition again, but this time as a movement workshop for Peter Darling. Now, I mean, I played the only non-dancing, non-singing role in Matilda, which was great. I was like, go on stage, sit down, <laughs> listen, then get up, come off. Actually, I've made kind of quite a career of doing non-singing roles in the West End. It's been brilliant. That was something I was going to say to you later, actually. One of the things I love about Anne Juliet is how much we get to hear you sing. No, it's very scary, you know. Well, I can tell you why. So I, I went through a period of tremendous stage fright. 
because I was asked to take over. So there was a production. I'm not going to say what production was, but I was asked to just come in and kind of help them out because uh, somebody had to leave the production. And um, the producer attached it when told by the director that they were asking me said, oh, her, no, she's lost it. She can't sing anymore. And somebody in their wisdom decided to come tell me. Oh. At which point my brain gave me stage fright. And so anytime I had to sing, I would just lose my voice. It would just go immediately. And I remember like, you know, having to, I thought I was okay because, you know, I'm so good with my brain and I'm so good talking to myself. And I was like, no, okay, it's fine. You know, some years have passed. And, and then I was in Matilda and I was asked to do some concerts you know one of these Raymond Gubby concerts over the Christmas time and I went and I stressed myself out so much nothing was wrong with my voice my voice was perfectly fine but I stressed myself out so much and there was like this one song that I had to sing that I just could not sing without having like a really wobbly voice <laughs> and it gave me such terrific like I and I suffered and actually it was very I was glad that it happened to me because it meant that when I did my um, my counseling training, one of the projects, one of the things that I decided to present on was stage fright and actually finding out just how many people it affects and what uh, having the personal experience and the anecdotal experience of going through it myself. But actually, it, it's an area worth studying because so many very, very good performers, we lose so many of them, just something that could so easily be avoided if people were just a bit kinder. And it can come on like that. I mean, literally that woman, who is not somebody that I would say has great bearing on my existence, but it was just that one comment. And it was enough to give me years and years of problems with my voice. And so coming now, back into the West End and having to sing and having to sing such difficult material. I don't care what anybody says. Pop music is hard. Yeah, these are big songs. These are big, big songs. Every song are big songs. Like, I don't know how Miriam does it. Like, beginning to end, she's just, like, giving it the 11 o'clock number from 7.30 at night. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and as is Cassie. And, and so... There I am, you know, having to come with myself and at my age as well, right about the stage with David Padella, who is a dreamboat. Yeah, it was a real, I had to really talk to myself. I had to really, really say, okay, this is going to happen. People are going to hear you. Was it made harder or easier by the fact that you were in it from the very beginning, from the development stage right through to the West End opening? I think so much easier because I really didn't think about it. But by the time we got to the West End opening, it, it was so, we'd done it for so long because I was involved in the very first UK workshop of it in 2017. So by the time we reopened, because we're now due to reopen in March 2021, mm -hmm. I would have been, you know, all things being equal and fingers crossed because who knows. I would be involved in this show from 2017 to 2021. That was a long time. So by the time we came to the West, I was like, eh. 
let's open it here now. We performed it over and over again. You know, we'd like done a performance in, in the second workshop. We performed it for some people. And then we, we did another workshop where we had five performances to 100 people every night. And Andrew Lloyd Webber was there, just sat there. And we were like, oh, we could, by the time we got to Manchester, and Manchester was brilliant and, you know, like, like a pop concert because Manchester audiences are the very best. And then we got to West End and was like, oh, well, if they like it, they like it. <laughs> you know, it's like, what can we do? We've literally rehearsed this to within an inch of its life. <laughs> so would you say that actually this show, as much as it was a frightening prospect in, in the size of these songs, would you say that actually that has helped you conquer your stage fright? I would say, yeah. I mean, you know, it's the... I think it's always there. I think it's, it will always be a problem that I have, which is fine. You can, you know, we can have stuff and live with it. It's okay. It just means that I have to prepare more, which is also fine. You know, it's not as easy as when I did lots of concerts back in the first decade of my time in this country, um, where I would just be like, oh, it's a lovely song and just go sing it, whatever. That's my voice. What it has made me do is really accept my voice in that I don't ever call myself a singer. I find it very difficult to call myself a singer, actually. But I, it really made me so aware of the voice that I have, and I'm okay with it. It's like, that's my voice. You know, it's maybe not as beautiful as other voices, or it's, you know, it's not as, I don't know, sonorous as other voices, but it's my voice, you know? And... It's my, one of my tools of expression. And so therefore, that's what I'm going to work with. I, mean, I remember it was David Shrubsall, who's a musical director and composer, who, and a very, very dear friend, who once gave me a bit of advice. He said to me, sing with the voice you have, not with the voice that you wish you had. And I've extrapolated that to almost every aspect of my life. I do the performance, whatever it is. And also I enter my day just with the tools that I have for that day. Not with the tools that I wish I had, not with the way that I dealt with things last week or the way that I wish that I was. Because I think that's where people have problems, right? They, they have an idea of who they want to be. And then there's a the reality of who they are. And sometimes the space between those things are, is just too large. So when it comes to my voice, I am not going to worry about the voice that I want to have or wish that I had or the voice that I had yesterday. I'm just going to deal with my reality. So therefore, I don't have to worry about the space between what I have and what I wish. And in my performance, in my acting, it's the same thing. I'm just going to deal with what I bring with it today, given my journey in, the day that I've had, how I feel about certain things, who pissed me off, who made me happy. I'm going to bring those things to bear on the performances rather than the kind of actor that I wish that I was. Because the space between that is too wide. And in my daily life, in the way that I deal with people, I will just deal with the reality of me and the reality of you rather than the relationship I wish that it was. So all I can do is be present with what is here now rather than give myself anxiety 
about the things that I wish that were here. So that's how I deal with it. I think that's very useful advice for, for anyone. It's been wonderful to just hear all your, your wisdom. Thank oh, you so much. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, anytime, honestly. Thank you, my love. That's it for this week's episode. A huge thanks to Mel and to Wayne Perry for connecting us. Next time on the podcast, I'll be joined by Gavin Lee, who played Bert in the original production of Mary Poppins, and who was most recently seen on Broadway in SpongeBob SquarePants the Musical. So your homework this week is to go and find the SpongeBob cast recording and have a listen. My favourite track is called Just a Simple Sponge, because Lord knows I love an I Want song. Anyway, subscribe now to make sure you don't miss my chat with Gavin and I'll see you next week. Thank you very much for listening.